Morning. I forgot the birthday of a friend not long ago, and I remembered it like three or four days after the fact and felt terrible. Turns out the reason I forgot it is because I hadn't written it on my calendar. That's the only bad thing about actual physical calendars. You have to manually transfer everything over with the, with the new year. But I got to thinking about that. And it's what's true of birthdays is true of anniversaries or national holidays or Christmas, for that matter, though some of those things are pre-printed on our calendars. But these, these special days basically circle around each year more than just to remind us that we were born or that we got married or that it's almost time to go shopping. How many more days do we have, Rex? 299 days. So, But rather, these, these celebrations prompt us to think about the value of a person on a birthday, or the, the importance of your marriage in an anniversary, or the importance of patriotism with a national holiday, or the incarnation with Jesus at, uh, at Christmas. These special days that we put on our calendar basically stop, force us to stop and remember what otherwise we would, like I did, forget if we didn't have these triggers to remind us of these important things. Well, the spiritual life has its cues as well. And the calendar, I think it would be wonderful if we'd have a calendar that sort of pre-printed the important spiritual moments in, in the upcoming year. But of course, we don't know those. We just have to figure them out as the days unfold. God built the, the spiritual life into the calendar in, uh, in the Bible like with the Passover, every single year. The, the goal of the Passover was to have the, the, the Hebrews of the Old Testament remember and not forget the Exodus. In fact, the most significant event for the Hebrew in the whole Old Testament was the Exodus. People were, the Lord and prophets were always pointing back, remember how the Lord brought you out from Egypt, out of slavery into the land in which you're in. There was always a looking back, and the annual Passover was their way to stay connected to, the, to their redemption, to a historical event. For us, that Passover meal has now been transferred, you might say, to communion. As we, the Lord Jesus told us, do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you do, Paul adds, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Communion is now our trigger, our way to remember the Lord's death on our behalf. Otherwise, believe it or not, we might forget it. Well, at the end of the Apostle Peter's life, he picked up his pen and he wrote for us a short letter, 2 Peter. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter's theme in this book is to circle your spiritual calendar. Along with the book of Second Peter ought to come a calendar pen because it reminds us of essentials that we must not forget as Christians. In fact, Peter tells us a number of times throughout the book that his purpose of writing this book is not to give us some grand new theological truth that, that he'd like to share, and he could have. By this time, he had walked with Jesus Christ for more than 30 years. But Peter's purpose was to remind us of what we already know. We started last week into this book, and the first 11 verses of it, we looked just at Peter's overall theme, 
as well as got into the nitty-gritty of what we as Christians need to focus on. And he began, he began by, by telling us that we need to add to our faith, to those who have received, he says in verse 1, a faith that's the same kind as ours. That is, a faith that comes by the righteousness of God and of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That a faith that is not based on anything we do, but a faith that is based on what Jesus has done. That he died in our place on the cross. And our faith in that, that great act of, of sacrifice uh, gives us the salvation that we have. Peter says to add to that faith now, uh, add, to the, add to your faith, verse 5, he says, applying all diligence in your faith, supply, and then he lists seven uh, qualities that we are to add to our faith. And then in verse 9, he says, if you lack these qualities, you are blind or short-sighted or nearsighted. That is, you take off your glasses and you only see what's right in front of you. You're not seeing the big picture. You've forgotten what communion is to remind us of. That is, you have forgotten your purification from your former sins. The Christian life intends that we constantly remember what Jesus Christ has done for us because one of the greatest motivations for us to glorify Christ comes as our response to what he's done for us. So Peter continues with, with uh, his emphasis not only on the Christian life but now especially on our greatest tool to grow in the Christian life and that is the Bible, the Word of God. Let's begin at verse 12. Peter writes, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder. Once again, Peter's theme leaps off the page. He says, I consider it right. I want to be ready to remind you, even though you already know it. To be reminded of what we already know is essential. Repetition is woven into the fabric of God's intentions for us as Christians. That we continue over and over. Don't feel bad that you've forgotten a verse. The intent is that we, we go through the Bible over and over so that that the Lord is able to keep us clean. I remember hearing one time a professor in seminary saying that it was such a struggle to uh, because they couldn't remember the word. He, he was speaking to somebody who couldn't remember the Bible, and he said that that our brains are sort of like a filter or a sieve, where you pour you pour water in, it just goes right out, but it stays clean. It stays a clean vessel, and that's a great picture. That even if you can't remember the word, being constantly in the word allows you to be cleansed over and over. And the renewing of the mind is a constant process that we go through as Christians. Peter knows the forgetfulness of human nature, which is why he says, I consider it right as long as I'm alive, as long as I'm in this earthly body, to stir you up by way of reminder. To remember those essentials stirs us up. It, it ignites our passions. It reminds us of our commitments. 
And Peter says it's right to do this. And let's look at why he says it's right. He, he continues, verse 14. He says, knowing that the, laying side, that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. So he's talking about his death here, the laying aside of his earthly dwelling or, or the folding up of his tent, as it were. The folding up of his earthly dwelling or his tent is imminent, as Jesus made, made clear to him. Uh, in John chapter 21, Jesus told Peter how he was going to die. He told him he was going to die as an old man and that he would stretch out his arms and be taken somewhere where he didn't want to go. And Peter understood this. He's writing this in a context where he clearly understands that he is about to die. And we know from, um, from history and tradition that Peter died in Rome, traditionally upside down at his request because he didn't feel worthy to die in the same manner that Jesus died. Peter also was crucified. And Peter says, I want to be diligent that any time after my departure, you're going to be able to remember what's essential. Part of that is his writing Second Peter through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But notice his word in verse 15, I will also be diligent. That word diligent is a word we've seen before. First of all, back up in verse 5, remember he says, now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, add all these qualities to it. And then in verse 10, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain his calling and his choosing you. For as long as you practice these qualities, you'll never stumble. And then verse 15, what we just read, I will also be diligent. So Peter is practicing what he's preaching, that there is a diligence in the Christian life to continue and refresh yourself on the basics. There's nothing wrong with that. There's everything right about being reminded of the basics of the Christian life, because if we don't, if we aren't reminded, we will absolutely forget them. The story of Noah. I was trying to figure out what passage that was. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll keep pressing on. Gone with the Wind. There are several movies that Kathy and I watch that we want to watch when we, when we need to try to go to sleep. Let me help you with that. Thank you, Lisa. All right, so there are some movies that we watch when we're trying to fall asleep. Fiddler on the Roof, I hardly make it through the Matchmaker song, and I'm out. Uh, Gone with the Wind's another one, but if you can make it all the way to the end of Gone with the Wind, you have the most famous line in that, that, that uh, movie. And, uh, of course, Scarlett is at her wit's end, you know, when she asks Rhett Butler, Rhett, where will I go? What will I do? And... Of course, we all know Rhett's answer, which I won't, I won't repeat. But often in our lives, we ask that same question, that we are at our wit's end, and we don't know where we're going to go, what we're going to do. Now, Rhett's answer wasn't that sensitive, and it, wa and it, wasn't, it wasn't that wise. 
A better answer would be, frankly, my dear, I think you should read the Bible. <laughs> Truly, where will I go? What should I do? Frankly, I think you should read the Bible. Because if you want to know the will of God, it's in the Word of God. If you want to know what God wants you to do for your life, then read the Word of God because therein he answers those questions. The Psalms are filled with anxious people expressing their thoughts to God. Uh, and and it's, it's therapeutic writing. It's therapeutic praying. And it's inspired. And we read the Psalms and we can identify with David's anxiety as he's running from Saul or Asaph's frustration at, at the way the world is as opposed to the way that, that he knows he needs to be in light of God. The Word of God is the emphasis of Second Peter. And we, we saw last week that God has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through his precious and magnificent promises. So Peter says, I want to remind you of these essentials as long as I'm alive, and I want to be diligent, diligent so that even after I'm gone, you won't forget that the place to go is the Word of God. There's several essential reminders about the Word of God. In fact, you could say that there's three reminders that really matter that we mustn't forget. And let's look at the first one, beginning in verse 16. Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Critics of the Bible say that the Gospels were put together, not during the, the first century when they were actually written, but the Gospels and the New Testament is a reflection more of the culture of the church or what the church wanted history to think that Christ said, as opposed to what Christ actually said. Peter says that's not true. This is not a cleverly devised tale, uh, particularly when he mentions the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, that Jesus is the Lord, spoken of, uh, as he mentions here, on the Mount of Transfiguration. What is revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration is that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, his kingdom is indeed coming, that he is indeed the Son of God, that he is uh, endowed by God with God's blessing. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The church didn't make that up. This is not a cleverly devised tale. Peter is saying, I saw it. I am an eyewitness of his glory, and I'm writing it down for you. So the first reminder that we need to remember here is that our source of truth comes from God, not from ourselves. Our source of truth comes from God, not from ourselves, which really goes against the culture, doesn't it? And it's not a new thing. The Enlightenment hit this country back in the 1700s, and uh, people, by and large, even some of the clergy, bought it hook, line, and sinker. That is, the enlightenment that you can begin to now filter the word of God through, through rational 
rational thinking as opposed to submitting your mind to God's word. Now you're submitting God's word to your mind. Peter says, this is not the way it operates. Our source of truth comes from God, not from ourselves. We evaluate ourselves based on the word of God. We don't evaluate the word of God based on ourselves. Peter gives this example of the Mount of Transfiguration. The source of truth about Jesus came from God the Father. God the Father himself said, this is my beloved son. And look at verse 19. Literally, it says, and, begins verse 19, and we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Here's the second reminder. Our source of guidance comes from God's word and not from ourselves. Once again, the will of God is in the word of God. Our source of guidance comes from God's word and not from ourselves. Peter says that God the Father affirmed all the prophecies of Jesus. When he says we have the prophetic word made more sure, all the prophecies that were talked about Jesus and the Messiah coming in his kingdom were made more sure that moment that God the Father said, this is my beloved son. It was made more sure in the sense that, that God said, Absolutely, yes, this is my son. It was made more sure. The prophets pointed to Jesus Christ, and Peter says, I heard it. So, you would do well to pay attention. The Bible was affirmed, so you would do well to pay attention to it, he says, as to a lamp shining in a dark place. When I was a kid, I would sleepwalk. And I'm told that this is common for children. Uh, it was really common for me at a certain area, uh, time of life. And when I would spend the night at my friend Scott's house, he would often have fun with me with that. But one time I remember sleepwalking as, a, as an adult. In fact, it's the only time I can remember doing it. Kathy and I lived in a previous house. And I woke up in the middle of the night, I think it was about midnight, standing in total darkness and I, all of a sudden, I just realized I was awake and standing, and it was completely pitch black. And I, it, of course, you know those moments like when you wake up in a hotel room, or, and you don't know where you are, or you, you look at your clock, and you, it, you, you, your brain hasn't kicked in yet, so you're thinking, make sense, make sense. Well, I was standing there and thought, well, okay. And so I started walking, and I, I felt, and, and I couldn't feel anything. So I started walking, and my foot hit a wall but there's no wall. And so I thought, well, that's strange. I'll try this direction. Didn't feel anything. My foot hit a wall, but there's no wall. This was messing with my mind. And so I thought, all right, I'm going to follow this wall from the floor. Let's see if it can get away from me. So I, I went down and realized as I began to feel the wall, it was the side of the bathtub. I was standing in the bathtub. <laughs> And around our bathtub, we had a couple of half walls. So there was nothing here, but there, there were walls. It wasn't until I flipped the light on and saw what was, I just, oh, that was the funniest thing. But why in the world I was standing in the bathtub in the middle of the night is, is not so funny. I have no idea. But the light solved all that for me. It took the light. 
I'll never forget this, and I'm glad that, uh, well, I'll just leave that for, for the end of the story. But I'll never forget this. When our girls lived at home and I would drive to work early in the morning, I would leave uh, before anybody else would get up. So I got dressed and was heading out, and the last thing I would do before I would leave is kiss all the girls and Kathy goodbye. They're asleep. They rarely knew it. Sometimes they'd kind of, you know, grog awake and smile and say, have a good day. Uh, and it's so sweet when, you know, one of your daughters will reach up and, and hug your neck while, you know, where they're half awake. Oh, that's the stuff life is made of. Well, one morning, I was going in and I was about to kiss my younger daughter, Katie, goodbye. And the hall light's on, so my light, my eyes are adjusted to the hall light, and I open her bedroom door where it's dark. So I'm going into the dark, and I have the floor, the floor plan memorized, and I know where Katie is in her bed. And so I, I, I bend over, and, I, and I'm probably this close from kissing the person that Katie invited to come spend the night. <laughs> and I didn't, no one told me that they were there. And I literally recognized this is not my daughter as I was about this, about six inches away from uh, being a, a hashtag me too in this lady's, <laughs> she grew up. Oh, and I, I was terrified as soon as I realized this is not my daughter I'm about to kiss. And I literally just kind of backed away hoping that they wouldn't wake up and they didn't. But I never forgot that because if there had been enough light in the room, that problem would not have occurred. Thank goodness my eyes adjusted before I kissed this, this uh, little teenage girl. Think about the headlights on your car. Maybe this is a better illustration, more practical for you. And it is such, certainly more in line with what Peter's talking about. He says, the Bible is the prophetic word made more sure to which you, to which you do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp in a dark place. When you're in a dark place, you pay attention to your lamp, whether it's a flashlight, whether it's a, a Coleman lantern out at a campsite, or whether it's you know, knowing where the light switch is as you're feeling along the wall. You pay attention to a light in a dark place, and Peter says, that's what we do with the Bible. Because we live in a dark world, and the Bible is our light. But notice how he describes it. He describes it as a lamp as to a lamp shining in a dark place. A lamp doesn't show you the whole path. A lamp shows you the next step, a lot like your headlights do with a car. The headlights don't show you the whole trip. The, the headlights show you what's right in front of you, and you trust that it will continue to show you and continue to show you and continue to show you. That's what God's Word does in our lives. We open the Bible and we want to see, God, show me the plan for my life. And the reality is, it usually just shows you the next step. And that's all it's designed to do. As, uh, as the psalmist wrote in Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It shows me the steps to take. And he says that we're to cling to this lamp as in a dark place until the day dawns. You don't need your headlights when the day dawns. You've got the sun. The sun now takes care of the light that the lamp took care of. So let's go with what, what Peter is using here as his metaphor. 
The Bible is a lamp that guides us in this dark world until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. The book of Revelation says that the morning star is the, the name for Jesus. Until Christ comes we are to, and the day dawns, that, we're, that way we see everything, we are to devote ourselves to the Bible to see what the next steps are. The prophetic word, Peter says, we are do, to do well to pay attention to it. Our ability to see, if you think about it, comes from a source that's completely outside of ourselves. If we didn't have light, we have all the capability to see, but if we don't have light that comes from outside ourselves, the fact that we can see is pointless. We need light to see. God's light shows us what's in the darkness. It illuminates what is hidden. It encourages us to take the next step, and it gives us confidence that we can trust Him. The light we seek is actually a greater understanding of the Lord Himself. Because even when the Bible shows you the next steps, that's all it shows. It still requires faith. When we seek answers from God, we're never going to get answers in, in a way that um, eliminates our need to trust the Lord. All it does is affirm our faith that we can trust Him and allows us to continue to take the next steps and the next steps and the next steps. Look at what else Peter tells us about God's Word. He's told us that our source of guidance comes from God's Word, not from ourselves. Now in verse 20, uh, verse 20, he tells us something else. He says, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Here's the third reminder. The meaning of the Bible comes from God, not from ourselves. The meaning of the Bible, the interpretation of the Bible, comes from God and not from ourselves. Several years ago, I read an article in an archaeological magazine which noted the death of a particular scholar. I won't mention his name, but he had been a champion for ecumenicism and a voice for women and minorities. The article ended with a quote from this scholar, and I, and I wrote his words down. Listen very carefully to what he said. He said, the Christian Bible includes sayings that have caused much pain, both to Jews and to women. Thus, I have felt called to seek forms of interpretation which can counteract such undesirable side effects of the Holy Scriptures. Undesirable side effects of the Holy Scriptures. You know, when I read that, what grieves me about such a remark is not the desire to, to comfort or to give voice to minorities or to those who have been hurt or mistreated or abused. What concerns me about a mindset like that is that somehow that thinks that God's Word stands in, in contradiction to God's love. That somehow if if there's something in the Bible that seems to be opposed to somebody, that we need to tweak it so, according to our understanding so that it doesn't contradict. 
I shared this with uh, a friend of mine, and he said, isn't it interesting how that what this scholar said sort of mirrors another quote that we know even better. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? I shared this with our family one night at dinner, and one of my daughters said, uh, one of our girls, Katie, again said that it reminded her of the Jefferson Bible that we had seen up at the Smithsonian Institute when we went to Washington, D.C. Thomas Jefferson read his New Testament or read the Gospels with a pair of scissors. And if there was anything miraculous in it or anything that focused on the deity of Jesus, Jefferson would cut it out. And when you go to the Smithsonian, you can see the, there are actual parts of the Bible missing in the, what's called the Jefferson Bible. Jefferson, of course, is a product of the Enlightenment during that time. There's no doubt that there are, the Bible has many so-called undesirable side effects. Uh, it offends us. There are parts of the Bible we read that are offensive because it hits us in a way that we wouldn't have said it that way, or we might have said it maybe a way that wasn't quite so harsh, or we would have forgiven when instead the earth opens up and people fall into the crack. There are many undesirable side effects. But rather than seek to change the meaning of the Bible, which if you think about it, in effect, makes it meaningless, wouldn't it be better to, to understand the Bible as God intended it? Let's say you wrote me an email and you said, uh, Wayne, we'd like to have lunch with you and Kathy at the Olive Garden at 1230. And we're open to that. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Let's have lunch at the Olive Garden at 1230. The email probably means what you wrote. If I read that and thought, you know what, I don't really like Italian food, uh, that probably meant that we'll meet at Jason's, Jason's Deli. Well, we show up at Jason's Deli and no one else is going to show up because what you wrote is what you meant. And if there's any question about what you meant, I don't decide what you meant. I ask you. I call you and say, hey, I got this email from you. I'm not sure what you meant by this. Can you explain it? Meaning resides with the author, not with the reader. When we read the Bible, it's exactly the same way. Meaning resides with what God intended by it, not how we want to read it, or even how we think it makes best sense. Meaning resides with the author. When I studied my undergrad uh, study at North Texas State University was in music, and one of the classes I took was, uh, I don't even remember what it was, but we studied the composer. One of the composers we studied was the American contemporary composer, now the late John Cage. John Cage believed that the universe is impersonal by nature, and that it originated by pure chance. And he composed his music by pure chance to follow along with what he believed. In other words, he'd like flip coins to determine the, 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 the time signature, the key signature. He would, call what's, he would create what's called a prepared piano, which means you'd stick stuff in the piano to make it sound different. Uh, he was very creative, but at the same time, you know, when you hear his music, 
uh, he intended that, that, that there would be no element of personality that would enter into his compositions. And it sounds just like you imagine. There's no order, no structure, and frankly, no appeal. But his professional life accurately reflected his personal beliefs. But here's the funny thing. Cage also, beside being a composer, was a mycologist. A mycologist studied mushrooms. And he, of course, you know, you pick a, pick a poison mushroom and that's the end of you. And so he said this. I thought this statement was amazing. He said, I became aware that if I approached mushrooms in the spirit of my chance operations, I would die shortly. And I, I read that and thought, isn't it strange that we can deny God's order and creation as much as we want, but eventually we're going to submit to it? Because it is what it is. If we stand before a judge for a, a speeding ticket or something, and I tell the judge I don't really interpret the law the way he does, that's not going to make any difference. Practically, I will still have to pay the fine. Meaning lies with the author, not with the reader. So when we come across a passage that offends us or confuses us, it's better to assume the limitations of our understanding than assume that the limitation is with the Bible. Peter says men didn't think this up on their own. There is no, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Why? Because no prophecy of Scripture was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So how do we know what God means? If we read a passage and we think, well, how do I know what this means? Scripture interprets itself. Often it interprets itself. In fact, a great example is in this very verse, verse 21. It says, men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. If you were to turn to Acts chapter 24, verse 15, you don't have to turn there, but if we were, it talks about a ship being carried along. It's the same word that's used here. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And that helps us, gives us an insight into inspiration. That, that people were carried along. Like the Spirit of God is the one who is actually in control of the process and the direction. And yet the personality of the author is very clear. That somehow God is able, through, through, the, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to take an imperfect author, Peter, and to create an inerrant text of the Bible. If you think about it, the same is true with, the, with Jesus, the Word, that the Holy Spirit came upon Mary, an imperfect author, if you want to think of it that way, an imperfect person, to produce a perfect Word, the living Word, Jesus. The written Word, the living Word, both came about through the act of the Holy Spirit through the means of an imperfect sinner to create a perfect product. This is our marvelous, marvelous Bible. Um, did God really say, well, the seed of doubt continues to be in and among us? He did say it. And no prophecy was ever an act of human will. So if you, if you read the Bible and you think, boy, I just don't, I'm just not sure I agree with that. Stop and pause and say, all right, Lord, 
I'll be honest with you. I don't like what I've just read. It confuses me. But then let your next, uh, let your ne- next reaction be, but I believe you. I trust in your goodness. I'm not going to believe the seeds of doubt that I'm hearing in my head. I'm trusting your goodness, and I'm going to seek an answer, either through cross-referencing, either through a trusted commentary, either through asking my pastor or someone who can give some insight. But I'm going to seek to understand and let the Bible interpret itself rather than me assume that the Bible's wrong. Peter was right. Only by continually remembering what we already know can we remain willing to live and die for this truth. Well, I was driving in Denton, Texas a few years back, and I stopped at a stop sign that was so intriguing, I went back and got a picture of it. So, Blair, you've got a picture of our stop sign here. There it is. Look at that. That's not Photoshop. That's really, this is a, this is a ponder scripture. Ponder scripture. And if you add the word stop in there, it becomes even more significant. This is by where Flow Hospital used to be in, uh, in Denton. But the, I saw that and thought, boy, that is a great illustration. And after snapping the picture, I pulled off to the side of the road and watched the next five cars that pulled up to the stop sign. Only one person stopped. Most, most just blew, blew right through, like most of us probably do. But I got to thinking about the intersection. Stop, ponder Scripture. The command is there. It's at a crossroads that many people see every day. And yet the surrounding neighborhood is unaffected, in a sense, by it. They see the the stop sign, but not necessarily the street sign. They see the stop, they're supposed to pause, but ponder scripture. I, I just, I love the picture because it reminds us of what we need to do. And it's a great also illustration that we can set up triggers. We talked about circling dates on our calendars. It's not the only way that we can do this. Set up triggers in your mind or in your activity throughout the day that reminds you of Scripture. Uh, Maybe it's you can think of whatever you read in the Bible that morning or the night before or whenever you have your time with God. Let your passion be, your commitment be, not simply to read the Word, but to say, here's the one thing, here's the one thing that I'm going to take from the Bible today. Maybe it's just a sentence. This is the one thing I'm going to think about throughout the day. Then let the triggers that you set up remind you of that one thing. Maybe it's every time you stop at a stop sign, you're going to think about whatever it is that morning, that you're going to stop and ponder Scripture. A couple of other things I jotted down just as ideas. You could set a recurring calendar notification, either on your computer or on your smartphone, to remind you to to ponder your verse. Or you can use your wrist your wrist watches hourly beep. We don't hear those a lot anymore. In a way, I'm kind of gr- grateful because they go off all the time. Or you can uh, t- to remind you to think about it. Or you can put your watch on a different uh, wrist, just so that it makes you go, "Oh yeah, ponder ponder the scripture." Or if you've got a wall plaque of your favorite verse, hang it upside down for a week. To where every time you see it, it triggers your mind to think about the Bible. You got a piece of furniture in your house, move it to where 
You know, now, gentlemen, I'd ask permission first before you do this. And if you do it, be sure and turn the light on in the middle of the night or you hit it. But you, you get what I'm saying. Maybe even a 3 by 5 card. I know that uh, our girls do this. They'll write verses on a 3 by 5 card and they'll, they'll tape it to their dashboard in their car as a trigger. Or put it on your mirror. So anyway, you can come up with your own, but just create the triggers. Peter is saying, I want to stir you up by way of reminder. We can apply that same truth in our lives. Trigger the scripture in your mind to be reminded and ponder that scripture throughout the day. Because our source of truth comes from God and not from ourselves. That's the first reminder. The second, our source of guidance comes from God's word and not from ourselves. And finally, the meaning of the Bible comes from God and not from ourselves. What an amazing gift we've been given in this book. It gives us insight. It gives us light to which we would do well to hold like a lamp until Jesus comes. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that the Apostle Peter kept it simple. While he could have introduced us to great theological truth to impress us with his knowledge, instead he kept it really basic, and he said that we need to add to our faith in Jesus Christ these simple qualities, all rooted in Scripture. Thank you also, Father, that we have this great book that gives us um, revelation we would otherwise not know, that often contradicts and even offends the quote-unquote common sense of our mind and certainly of our age. Help us to believe it in those moments where the culture contradicts it and doubts it. Help us to stick closely to this book, to cling to it, to hold fast as we would as to a lamp in a dark place until the day dawns and Jesus Christ comes to get us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.